lives in light of all the really the uncertainties of our times. In many ways, at least it feels that like the whole world is teetering on the brink sometimes. And I think the most important question we can be asking as we stand here on the threshold of 2012 is this, do I have a place to stand? Or maybe the question will be, will I have a place to land if the bottom falls out, as it has, I know, for many of you and many in our country and in the world. A good part of this comes from the candidating message that I gave almost uh, five years ago when I told you what my highest priorities as a pastor would be if you voted for me. I've referred back to this uh, several times uh, over the last years, but after almost 30 years of maintaining these priorities, last year I fell away from them at least up until my 40-day fast, and so this message is just as much for me. I'm ultimately accountable to the whole congregation that asked me to come based on what I said I'd do and be. And um, that's why I'm telling you about my New Year's resolution, because this is part of what you voted for, that I not fall away from these things. It has to do with getting back, really, to the heart and soul of our vision, and that is our growing, what? Intimacy with God. Growing intimacy with God. We'll see, just like we sang, that better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better for uh, my soul, better for productivity, better for energy, better for fruit, better for everything. You can't waste your time in the courts of God. This sermon is my resolution this year. And maybe starting tomorrow, not today, I ask you to hold me accountable to it. (laughs) So, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all this serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part. Literally, that translates the best part which shall not be taken away from her. A lot of things can be taken away from us, and may be. But that's the one thing that can't be. And so if you have what Mary had, no matter what happens, uh, all will be well. What's the one thing for you? What's the one thing in your life? What is the one thing that most matters? That you don't just give lip service to, but that you do. Martha was worried and bothered about so much that was so important, and yet it ended up being just a lot of fuss, a lot of activity without a single priority, at least without an important priority. But Mary, moreover, was listening to the Lord's Word, seated at His feet feet. She was at the still point of the turning world, a world that can be violently turning, the still point of the turning world where we all need to be centered on Christ. 
You know, a woman named Roberta Heston has had a powerful impact in my life over the years. She taught at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, for years, dealing with issues of spiritual formation, as she called them, the spiritual life of the leader, helping pastors with their spiritual life. And she said, you wouldn't believe how many pastors are hollow on the inside. And I've seen that over the years. The real problem so often is that pastors are too busy. It's rare that uh, that's not the case. And she really helped answer that in my own life and many others. She dealt with really the one thing that's most necessary. And in one way or another, I owe a good part of this message to her, as well as my mother. A number of years ago, she said that she had moved from the Pacific Northwest, where there were lots of trees, to Orange County, California, where uh, God knows there are few trees. And Mark Hill was in the, the, uh, the congregation the first hour, and he added an amen to that. There's a few, few of a lot of things in Orange County. One of those things is trees. And so when her family made the move, she said that her main prayer as they moved to Orange County, California, was, Lord, please give us a place with trees. And uh, as it turned out, they ended up with a piece of property that had uh, 88 of them, lovingly counted by her. But as fate would have it, there were uh, four years of drought after they moved in. And when the rains finally came, uh, a strange thing happened. Two of the trees completely uh, collapsed. One of them, one that fell across the driveway, was 80 feet tall. It looked strong and magnificent. It was so big that it took this truck with a a winch and four men to, to, to drag it away. And, of course, she wondered, how could such a thing have happened? Ever wonder that about famous pastors who fall into adultery, who build mega churches and all sorts of good looking fruit? She was so curious and so concerned for the other trees that she called a landscape architect who was also an arborist, that is, a uh, tree specialist. And after the sur- surveying the, all the devastation, he said this, and she wrote it down. He said, they do look beautiful on the top, don't they? But look at the one that's fallen. Notice the root structures. And when she did, she saw the obvious, something that she hadn't seen before. Now that the tree was down, it was clear that when it was standing, the roots were running horizontally, you know, parallel to the ground, just beneath the surface, rather than plunging vertically down. And here's what the man said. He said, during the drought, the roots all came up to the surface. Why? Listen to this, because they weren't being fed down deep. What about you? Would you survive such storms as came to Orange County, California, that are amassing around us, perhaps? Are you being fed down deep each and every day? Those trees looked so beautiful on the outside, but all the while they were dying of malnutrition, but you couldn't tell it by looking. You know, we have a tendency in our Christian walk to give this, this enormous amount of energy to our outer lives. And we idolize people who are energetic and who accomplish many impressive-looking things. We give an enormous amount of energy, especially in America, which is a can-do culture, driven by action, uh, an enormous amount of energies to our vocations, to our ambitions, to our ministries, to our hobbies, to our, you know, our recreation, to our little hobbies that become such a big deal. 
We can devote so much energy to the externals, to what we're accomplishing, to how we're appearing, to, to what they're thinking, and I lived for that. What we're enjoying. We do not content ourselves, said Pascal. We do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves and our own being before God. We desire rather to live an imaginary life in the mind of others. And for this purpose, we endeavor to shine. We labor unceasingly to adorn and preserve this imaginary existence and neglect the real. Martha neglected the real in that she was fixing on what seemed real. She was fixing on the things that are seen, like the writer of the Hebrews says, rather than on the things which are really real, the unseen things. The temporal rather than the eternal. So much that she neglected reality itself, life itself, and that is Christ. A real relationship with the Lord who was supposed to be her life. At the still point of her turning world. Now, there were at least three things that were keeping her from this one thing, at least three symptoms of shallow roots that are not only in these words that were written uh, long ago, but in our own lives. The first thing that was keeping her from the one thing was that she was, you might say, running tired. Running tired. Ever felt that way? Can you relate? Maybe not all of you can, but some of you, I'm sure, can. This, this can happen to you when you almost start to measure your success by how stressed you are, as Martha seemed to be doing. Success means always doing, always talking, always accomplishing, always performing, always experiencing, never sitting, never listening. Unless you're experiencing, you know, numbing fatigue, you must not be working hard enough. Unless you're experiencing some, you know, adrenaline rush, you must not be living well enough. That's a Summit County thing, right? For some, activity becomes almost like this anesthetic, this anesthetic that dulls the pain of an empty life or the pain of something in you know, their past or the pain of some future fear that you don't want to deal with and so you escape it by running tired. Others are running tired because they're running low on faith. They just don't have the faith to give God His time. There are too many guests to serve. There's just, you know, too, there's just too much to do. And because you never give them the tithe of your time, it's just like the tithe of our money. Because you never give them the tithe of your time, there's never enough time. As one man said, we impoverish life at the center for the sake of its ever-widening circumference. And if you've got an ever-widening circumference of a life, you must be successful, whether as a pastor or as a worker or whatever, however shallow you really are. You become like this rubber band. Ever play with a rubber band as a kid? You become like almost like a rubber band that's at the very end of its stretch. And uh, you know how you pull a rubber band far enough and it starts to lose all of its, its uh, I think, its tensile strength or something? And uh, then if you pull it any further, what happens? It's, yeah, it snaps. Well, we need to live life in the flex. But many of us, in, instead of living in the flex, are living on the edge all the time. And many pastors are like that and therefore like pastor, like parishioner. 
And it's great, you know, to live on the edge in some cases, like when you're knee-deep in powder on some black diamond run, which I've not done yet. I'm not that good yet. And, of course, which we can't do this year yet. But, uh, and it's sometimes great, but it's not great when it's like that's your whole life. If you're living in the stretched out, stressed out, on the edge limit of your capabilities with very little room for anything else to come in. And I tell you something, something else will come in. That's life. It's not great if you're feeling like Flip Wilson. I think it was he who said, if I had my entire life to live over, he was an old comedian. I probably date myself there. But he said, if I, if I had my entire life to live over, I doubt if I'd have the strength. <laughs> And then you start to get upset, right? You start to get upset at your spouse or your kids or your friends or your co-workers who, who aren't doing as much as you, who aren't as productive, who, who haven't bought into the madness. This is a uniquely American flesh pattern. And you say, do you not care? You've left me to do all the serving. This is a typical complaint of a Martha. She gets so righteously indignant at people who are not doing as much as she is until she starts to point the finger at him. Lord, do you not care? That's what she was doing. Why did she say this? Why such a fleshly reaction? Well, think about it. She, she was giving God himself the what for. She was offended at her sister. She was probably judging her. She thinks she's so spiritual. She spends so much time just not doing anything. How can that be good? Maybe you're giving God the what for. Maybe you're giving someone else the what for, like she was doing with Mary. Why was she doing that? Well, there are three things that were keeping her from this one thing. First, she was running tired. So a lot of flesh came out. Because second, she was running busy. Running busy. Here, the Lord of the universe was in the very next room. At the still point of their turning world, and her own sister was there on her knees as an example, and she was just offended. And she pointed the finger at him. Did he care about her? Lord, do you not care? Well, there's a no-brainer answer to that question. Of course, he did care about her. The real problem was that she didn't care about him. And that's what happens. We point the finger at others, and there are four fingers pointing back at us. Because she was worshiping the wrong God, bowing down to the idol of busyness. What about you? Running busy? Not that a full schedule is wrong. Paul says that we are to be in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, one that my folks had me memorize when I was young. I love it. We, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Qualification. That labor needs to be in the Lord, centered in Him. He said we're not to be lagging behind in diligence, Romans 12, 11, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Who are you serving? He said, Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. But if it's not unto the Lord, there's a problem. Without some quiet devotion, it'll 
almost always end up being just so much commotion. Running the rat race. Like Martha was. And like Lily Tomlin said, another old comedian, she said, I wrote this down once, the problem with the rat race is is that even if you win, you're still a rat. (laughs) And what's the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the race God's given us and the all-American race The difference between the race that Paul ran and the rat race is that in the world's way of running, there's a whole lot of impressive motion. But there's not really much direction in God's eyes. You never really get anywhere in the overall scheme of things because in man's race, you're kind of a rat in a maze going for the pellets, the perks, the strokes, the rays. Truth be told, that's your true motivation. But in God's race, you're doing it as unto the Lord with all your heart. You're doing it centered in Him so that out of that centeredness flows acts that are according to His will and that further His kingdom and not just what you think needs to be done. In God's race, you're a runner in a marathon who steadily draws on inner reserves that are at the still point of the turning world, centered in Christ, midstream of His will. And you know you might not see it, but you know you're going for the gold. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. One day in His courts is worth a thousand days elsewhere. Martha was going nowhere. She was going nowhere fast because there were three things that were keeping her from this one thing. First, she was running tired because second, as we've seen, she was running busy. And therefore, third, she was running filled but unfulfilled. Filled but unfulfilled, she was running on empty, which of course is a pretty good prescription for getting pretty fleshly. This is the emptiness of a life that has no time for the life giver, centered in Christ. And those who practice such neglect end up filled but unfulfilled. It's so easy, isn't it, to to fill our lives and to fill our children's lives with all sorts of activities, with people and things and extracurricular activities and sports and entertainment and even ministry. The one problem I've seen with pastors over 30 years is that they're too busy. They're driven by expectations and not centered on Christ. And what can happen as your outer life gets more and more full and the inner life becomes more and more barren is that in time, and we've seen this with pastors, you've seen it with friends, we've seen it all over the place, especially in America, is that in time what can happen is that there can be a collapse. And it comes in many forms, in the form of backsliding, in the form of a midlife crisis, depression, adultery, uh, ministerial burnout. That's why the majority of pastors in America, they've done various surveys on this, are depressed. These days are evil days. And many are our targets. And the days ahead of us may be even worse, even darker. And so like the virgin, from the pulpit to the pew, like the virgins, we need to keep our lamps full. Kind of like the old song. Remember the old song, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning till the break of day. Don't let me go out before you come, Lord. 
even under the best of circumstances. There's no getting around it. Life is going to be hard. And it's uh, looking around us, it could be harder than ever. And it'll be a school of hard knocks to your dying day. And so if you become an empty shell, the, the chances of collapse will be pretty great, given all the pressures. You won't roll around much longer without developing some pretty serious uh, stress fractures or even collapsing so it might feel, ever feel like you're going to collapse under your own weight. All because it's so easy to run filled but unfulfilled, to be running on empty rather than being centered on the source, the stream of waters that he says can flow out of us that will, that will never fail. So if that's the problem, what's the solution? <laughs> Well, again, the solution has to do with centering your life on Christ. But what does that look like? Well, it happens in two ways. By being more and more rooted in the body of Christ, because we are Him in flesh and blood. And it has to do with becoming more and more reflective, personally, at the feet of Jesus. That is, the solution has to do with solitude and community. Solitude and community. It says in the Phillips translation, and it comes right out of the text, that it says that Mary was settled down at the Lord's feet. She was in community. There were many others around her, but personally with Him. She was rooted, firmly planted, along with the many others that it says were in the room that day. In sharp contrast to Martha, who was just out there restlessly on her own, she was desperately alone. Never felt that way. For whatever reason, she just couldn't center herself. She couldn't settle down. So what does it look like? Well, this concentrated centering of our lives happens not only in community, where we become, we become rooted rather than restless. It happens there in a powerful way. And that's a good part of why we've been focusing on the community over this last year and a half. We started with a year in growing intimacy, well, a fundamental way we grow intimate with Him is in community. When we worship together, when we play together, when we are in small groups together, when we go to Iron Hour together. It's a powerful thing, and we have focused a lot on that over the last year and a half. Um, but it also happens just as much. In fact, it's got to start in solitude, where we can become rooted rather than restless personally, Reflective rather than reactive at the feet of Jesus, which in our vision is the heart and soul of it all, and that is growing intimacy with God. One of the secrets of becoming more like Mary is to, just, is to stop just reacting to life. It says in verse 40 that Mary was distracted. Literally, the word means that she was pulled or she was like uh, dragged away. She was jerked around by all these other external forces. Ever feel that way? The verb is in the middle voice in the Greek, which means that she was being acted upon rather than acting. She was being acted upon as a passive agent. Going with the flow. Reactive rather than reflective. A reactive stance is one in which the world sets the agenda for my life. You get up in the morning and then you just start reacting to whatever comes. 
however important or unimportant it may be, to my ministry, the tasks I have to do, my job, the kids, the, uh, the expectations of others, my recreational uh, passions, all of these and many more end up being what drive us, drives us. And you end up, here's what happens, you end up driven rather than called. Driven rather than called reflective rather than reactive. But the fact is that there's always going to be more to do than you can possibly get done. There will always be more demands than you can possibly ever meet. So the question is this, who's going to be in control? You or your world? That will depend on whether you're asking the right, deeper question. Most people are asking the wrong question, and it's a superficial one. And that is this. You get up and you think, how can I possibly get all these things done today? Anyone ever ask that question? I'll put two hands up. Yeah, how can I possibly get all these things done today? Few people are asking the right question, and that is this. What good thing must I sacrifice today for the sake of the best? No matter who I have to hurt and disappoint. Pastors need to ask that question. The parishioners need to ask that question. You know, if you're anything like me when you were younger, you probably thought you could get it all done, right? Or that you should be able to. So often you think, if only, if only I were better organized, I could manage of all this. If only I'd work better or work smarter or harder or, you know, whatever the current all-American jargon is from the business world. But the day comes when you realize that no matter how fast or how smart or uh, how organized you are, you're never going to get it all done. No matter how high you climb, someone will always climb higher than you. So that's not the goal, right? No matter how many needs you meet, there's always going to be far more than you can ever meet. And so that can only mean one thing, and that is this. And write it down if you've got a pencil. The need is not the call. The need is not the call. I don't know how many times over many years people have come up to me and assumed that the need is the call and you better do it. The need can't be the call. It almost goes without saying, Christ himself didn't heal, you know, every leper in Palestine. And he was God. He was God incarnate, and yet he would often, it says, Luke 5.16, slip away into the wilderness and pray. Because he knew something that J. Oswald Sanders said, the great missionary statesman. He said, the source of ministerial effectiveness lies at the door of the secret place and in how much time you spend there. And to slip away often... As it says he did, he had to leave a lot undone. And yet still he was able to say something that's amazing. As he approached the end of his days, John 17, 4, great high priestly prayer, he said, looking back over it all, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. I accomplished the work. Qualification, the work you have given me to do, not not their work. He accomplished all his work precisely because he left so much work undone, because he slipped away to pray. He was centered on the Father, and so he could distinguish things. He could distinguish between the tyranny, you know, of the urgent and the divine opportunity. And they're not always the same. 
the call he could distinguish from the clamor. He could hear the still, small voice among all the voices that were demanding, vying for his attention. And far more, because we're not God like he was, we desperately need to be reflective at the feet of Jesus. And not just at the uh, reactive, at the mercy of a world that'll eat you up and drain you dry. Do you have faith enough to give him the tithe of your time? To reflect rather than just react. To be rooted rather than restless. Called rather than driven. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Most of you know what you need to do. You, and many of you have really plugged in to the body of Christ, to com- the community here over these last year and a half. And if you'd like to be involved in small groups or find out more about what's going on, I'd love to meet with you. Uh, many of you know what it means to center yourself in Christ, to have devotions. And if you're uncertain about that or need a fresh way to do it, just give me a call and I'd love to get together. This is the ultimate priority. You know, some people talk about the Christian faith as if it weren't the ultimate priority, as if, um, you know, it were just one room in the house, just as another piece of the puzzle that you've got to get fitted into your life and into your children's lives. I have my job. I have my social relationships. I have my recreational, you know, activities. I have my family. And then over here, I have my church, and I'm here sometimes if something better is not going on. But Christianity is not just supposed to be our religion, right? It's not just supposed to be one uh, spoke of the wheel. No, Jesus Christ is supposed to be the hub of the wheel, the center of your work, of your relationships, of of your activities, of your very thoughts, of your whole life. Everything is to flow out of my abiding relationship with Christ through the concentrated centering of the captivated heart on Christ and on Christ alone. Because He alone can hold it all together and keep it somehow all moving in the right direction. And if he's not at the still point of your turning world, the pieces will eventually spin out of control. That's his way of getting us back to him. And it happens to all of us sometimes. But if he is at the still point of your turning world, if you abide in him, unlike the trees that weren't being fed down deep, there's another tree that the Scripture talks about that we can be like. You'll be like the tree that's firmly planted by streams of water. Psalm 1-3 yielding its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers, because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He communes with him. Let me conclude with this. You know, years ago, my sister and I spent four months bicycling and camping through Europe, and we experienced something high in the Alps, I guess it was something like we experienced in Summit County yesterday. I don't know if any of you dared get on the slopes yesterday, but and that is winds that can take you down unless you're on your knees. Right? I think they were upwards of, what, 125 miles an hour in Breckenridge? Almost a record. In fact, A Basin, Keystone, and Breck, all three of them sh- shut down for part of the day. It was almost a sign, perhaps, the very day before 2012. If anything, I thought, well, it's a confirmation I should give this illustration. 
It was a sign, I think, for a visitor to the Alps you may have heard about, that we heard about in Austria, who was making his first climb. To see, he was wealthy, and so he paid for two seasoned guides to go along with him because he wanted to make sure that he was safe and all that, and it was a steep and a hazardous ascent. And they climbed for hours until they finally uh, reached the summit. And when they did, the man was so excited and the view was so breathtaking that he just leapt to his feet to take it all in. But he forgot about the gale force winds, right? And so he was almost blown, you know, blown off his feet and over the cliff, like sometimes happens at Quandary or other places. And in fact, he would have fallen off the cliff had the guide not caught him and pulled him down. And here's what he said. He said, on your knees, sir, on your knees. You are never safe up here except on your knees. And so with us especially here in Summit County where the powers of darkness are raging. People come up here thinking it'll be heaven on earth, but it doesn't end up being that way so often. And especially in this country when the spiritual forces of wickedness are raging, as perhaps never before, blowing believers away in droves. And especially in this world where the economic and political forces are raging. Given what's arrayed against us, given what the future could so easily hold, we will never be safe if we're running busy, if we're running tired, if we're running filled but unfulfilled, running uh, on fumes. You will never be safe unless you are centered, rooted, grounded, On your knees, sir, madam. Seated at his feet, listening to his word. Together with Christ, in solitude and community. United with Christ at the still point of your turning world. So here we are at the gate of the year. Reminds me of King Edward of England who said this at the beginning of 1943. It was another very, very troubling time in world history. No one knew the outcome of the war. Hitler could have taken over the world. It was during World War II in his annual New Year's Day radio broadcast. He ended it with this. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. And this shall be better to you than light. And this shall be safer than a known way. And that's my prayer for me this year, to which I want you to hold me accountable, starting tomorrow. And that's my prayer for all of you, too, simply that we put our hand in his and say, precious Lord, Take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. Listen now, and as you listen, as we listen, let's all pray. Precious Lord, take my hand.